Hello, and welcome to Eyewitness Beauty, the podcast where we talk about the biggest stories in the beauty industry each week. I'm Nick Axelrod-Welk. And I'm Annie Kriegbaum. Annie, what's going on? I'm hiking. I'm a hiker girl. What, <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> is it mostly about an outfit? Yes. And let me tell you, I have been reading all of the reviews on Eddie Bauer's website. I have to say, Eddie Bauer's the clothing. I think yeah. they, they, they have some high-waisted flares. By the way, flares... I'm reinstating. Flares are back. Into the zeitgeist. I'm I'm allowing this to happen. In fact, you can even do a wide leg flare that starts like a little bit higher than Oof, the knee. Like a, that's almost getting into like Jinko territory. A little before my time, but not yours. So <laughs> am, I, am I dating myself? Maybe your audience will understand. But. <laughs> so you're wearing like a flare while you hike. It seems like everything would get underneath the... Hem. That so that's why you need the chunky hiking shoe. Oh god. Yeah. It. Which are very in right now. You know, like there's like fashion brands that are trying to do hiking boots. Like Gucci yeah. did hiking boots, like Or like, yeah, um uh, what's that other brand that starts with an A? Alex with a Y? No, no, God no. Anyway, but apparently Solomon, those are the shoes. Solomon, that was the one. That was the one I was thinking. <laughs> that's just an S. <laughs> but you know who makes a cute hiking shoe? Columbia. Really? Remember that brand? Yeah. My friend from high school went to this like program in Colorado for a semester where you would become like a mountain man and like become one with the mountains or something. He came back and he called Patagonia Patagucci because like all of the mountain people like thought Patagonia was like the kind of like flashy brand for like posers. They wore brands like Mountain Hardware and like all these like more hardcore brands. Okay, okay. I mean, we're not shopping at like outdoorsman supply for big and tall fisherman but that i think is like the way to do it if you're gonna do it i just don't anyways chunky pair of solomon shoes like a flared eddie bauer pant and then what's on top so that's just like wild card territory you know you could even you know strip down and do like a cute sports bra with the you know sweatshirt tied around your waist this seems like a not a hiking outfit where are you hiking in in a sports bra and a flared jean and a chunky boot um bear mountain this weekend, I'm going to go to New Canaan. Oh, right, because you just... Okay, actually, the big news is that you bought a car. <laughs> yeah. Did I tell you about my journey in buying this car? So I wanted no, the Subaru happened? because I felt like the Subaru was the most on-brand option for me. Right. Being a hiker now. And as our listeners know, like your dad made a commercial for Subaru in which they let a bunny out into the wild and PETA protested it. Yeah. So I don't think I get like the friends and fam discount, but I found, <laughs> I found the perfect Subaru, perfect color used. And it was a great price. It was well below market value, like well below like the normal amount of miles for like that year of car. And so I took an Uber for like two hours to fucking New Jersey. <laughs> and so they give me the keys and I get into the car and it's a fucking manual. <laughs> and I can't drive. <laughs> And they tried to teach me and I was just like killing it. That's like not something you can just like teach on a whim. And so. Did you get it? No. So then I had to buy the other, get this other car. I ended up buying a Jeep because I had to get home. So you bought a Jeep from the same person? That's that's the <laughs> definition of a bait and switch. <laughs> Should we do Baby Watch 2021? Yes. And today is your? 20 week ultrasound, which is the kind of like defining halfway point in a pregnancy. And also it's when you do the anatomy scan, which is like to make sure that everything like looks good. So that's actually in like an hour after we finish recording this podcast. So like, here's hoping. So you're going to FaceTime me in? 
Yeah, we'll like just do a whole group Zoom. Do you want to work on the caption for the Instagram together, or is that like more of a personal thing for you and Casey? That, yeah, I'll, I'm going to workshop that okay, myself. Okay. So here's what I've realized about all of these baby comparing apps, like baby size comparing apps. There's not a lot of specificity because here's what baby is the size of a banana. Okay, like we all know what a banana like is. A paper airplane. What piece of paper are we folding? No, I mean that's that's a sheet of that's an eight by eight and a half by eleven. Okay, okay a that's... Belgian endive. That's tiny. No idea what that is. Is that lettuce? Lettuce, yeah. Okay, it's and like then, it's like a cucumber lettuce hybrid, right? No. Okay. It's a bitter like cabbagey kind of thing. Right, right, right. And then here's the kicker: a sweet potato. What? That's. But like sweet potatoes can be any size. Mm-hmm. Is it a Japanese sweet potato or just like a no. standard? It just says big as a sweet potato. Oh, I did it again. I brought up Japan. Ha ha. Go ahead. <laughs> Have your. <laughs> and also the size of a palmier cookie, which are those like French pastry cookies that look like pretzels, you know, like those big ones that are like flaky and brushed with sugar and shiny. Mm-hmm. And so I don't really know what size she is, is to be honest. And I'm a little stumped. I think that there's a big opportunity to create a baby app that has a little bit more specificity involved. And also, the other thing I wanted to mention is I just became Instagram friends with the woman who created the What to Expect app and the What to Expect book franchise. And I want to have her on the podcast. She's, if you did you watch the Amy Schumer documentary? Nick, again with Amy Schumer. You're like her stalker. <laughs> Amy Schumer's my my Tokyo. Why don't you have her on the show? Amy Schumer? Yeah, let's have her be like yeah. the infant expert. Oh, you know what? We should have her on the show. That's a good idea. Let me, um, uh, hey, you know what? I did <laughs> well, get verified. I'll DM, I'll DM her. That means yeah. that she has to open it, right? A- Amy Schumer, in the documentary, she's always watching the What to Expect videos um, and the woman who stars in the What to Expect videos, the one who like tells you like your baby is starting to kick and scream or whatever, is the woman Heidi, who is now my Instagram friend. So I think we should have her on the on the pod. Okay, I'm just DMing Amy Schumer right now. <laughs> one second. Hey. All right, we'll what see what saying? she says. I said, hi, Amy. <laughs> hey, Amy, will you come on our podcast at Eyewitness Beauty? I feel like we should just like confirm it for next week. Uh, time for top stories. Let's do it. This is breaking news that our producer Jessamine just called to our attention by Rado's Ben Gorham, who is a friend of the pod, actually a friend of the pod, and on an upcoming episode is actually collaborating with IKEA on a line of candles called Ossinlig. Asinlig. Asinlig. It is 13 limited edition scented candles. Asinlig is Swedish for invisible, which reminds me of when Amy Poehler said that Ikea was Swedish for argument. (laughs) (laughs) And what they were trying to do was sort of create like an invisible design, which is what they say that fragrance does to your home. Smell is a very relevant part of the home and it creates a sense of comfort and security, Gorham said in a release. That makes sense. Yeah, we talked to Frank Vogel from Fermanish last week, too. It's like the biggest, fanciest fragrance conglomerate. And he was saying that people want comfort right now. 
And here's the best news. And this is actually also a call to our listeners. And by the way, listeners, you guys are awesome. We asked you about ads. You guys all DM'd us. We've asked you for questions. You all ask us questions. We love hearing from you. And here's a question and a comment. The comment first. The candles in this IKEA collection range from $9.99 to $24.99, which is a sweet spot for a candle because as you know, like you're literally burning money. And our producer Jessamine was saying she loves a cheap candle, but she loves to have them burning. Are there any other cheap candles that we need to know about that are dupes for more expensive candles or just like really great just to have and so you don't have to feel bad about spending $60? Please let us know. DM us. People love Bath and Body Works. Well, I want to know like which scents are like the secret winners. You know, out of all of L brands like Victoria's Secret. And like the limited. Oh, the limited. That's yeah. Brands that like otherwise like aren't doing very well, but they also own Bath and Body Works and Bath and Body Works is what's keeping the entire like ship afloat. Yeah, I believe it. And obviously like Ben is, he lives in Stockholm. Ikea is a Swedish company. So it kind of makes sense that they would collaborate. And there have actually been whispers of a collaboration for several years. So it's exciting that it's finally coming to fruition. What's funny too, Ikea does really cool kind of under the radar collaborations. They also did one with Virgil Abloh a few months ago, um, which sold out almost immediately. And the other funny thing is we're decorating our nursery right now and on some of like the really fancy LA vintage websites they have vintage IKEA pieces for mm-hmm. like thousands of dollars so mm-hmm. like you could buy a tong, you know chair now save it for 20 years and then sell it for thousands of dollars to an unsuspecting fucking yuppie I love that idea you should buy a bunch of like IKEA furniture now to save for college for a baby that's a great idea but anyway, IKEA X Ben Gorham launches November 1st, 2020. In CEO news, L'Oreal has named a new CEO, and he is a guy named Nicholas Hieronymus, which is actually a pretty cool name. He was previously the head of L'Oreal's Lux division, and he's basically, you know, seems like a company man. He's been on Garnier. He, he created Fructis. He created Fructis. Maybelline, L'Oreal Paris. He repositioned actually L'Oreal Paris as a quote unquote accessible luxury brand. And uh, he's doesn't seem like the most exciting hire, but definitely a safe one. Definitely a safe one. Speaking of market trends, <laughs> which we were in. <laughs> well, I think like white guy CEOs is definitely a market trend. True. So I guess like makeup is making a small comeback. So WWD is reporting on some findings from IRI, which is a Chicago-based research firm that, um, remember how we were talking about how like makeup was like plummeting in terms of sales and skincare was like rising to the top? Right, because no one was, no one was wearing makeup. They were just sitting at home. Well, they're reporting that eye makeup is inching back. Foundation and concealer are not decreasing as rapidly anymore, but lip products are still like not in the clear, obviously because everybody's wearing masks. But it's saying that it's only a slight downturn now rather than a like full-on plummet. If I have to see one more email marketing message telling me about mask knee. Yeah, it's not, I don't think it's real. Do you? No. I, I mean, think we're yes. all just stressed. Yeah, I think we're stressed. And I think people just like get breakouts. But yeah, skincare, body care on the rise. Look, I think it's because they launched all their holiday sets, which are all color cosmetics. So if we're seeing a small like uptick, 
I would say that that's why. I think that's a really good point. Because those sets are planned out like a year and a half in advance before anybody thought about like COVID or anybody wearing masks. So, and you know us consumers, we just love to consume. Amazon is doing a new live shoppable program, like live streams. And they're basically like an HSN for the next generation. On September 25th, beauty brands like Flawless by Gabrielle Union, Honest, Cetaphil, Neutrogena, Elemis, Falane, they all did this Amazon Beauty Hall live event. And it was 11 hours and it was hundreds of live streams. And I guess there were like special offers and they were promoted on everyone's individual channels and uh, the potential, I guess, I guess this is more of a story about the potential for live stream shopping is that there is a potential. I would never buy something in a live stream because I think live streams are really hard to catch. But if I guess if it's 11 hours, you can probably find some time to get in and get out. Well, we know this is huge in China. I think a couple of months ago, Bloomberg did an article about the world's live stream queen who can sell anything. She's like one of the most, like probably the most famous woman in China. And the live stream sales market over there is $60 billion. Wow. And they're calling it live online shopping. So I guess it's like this weird hybrid of like, you know, e-com and live stream. So it's not just like fully um, like an HSN, like old school. Oh my God, it's fascinating. I don't understand how it works. So people are just like live streaming, talking about products. It's basically just HSN on IG live. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, Amazon is, was trying to do something cool with, um, remember when they did that Heidi Klum, Tim Gunn fashion show? It was like the Project Runway knockoff, but it was on Amazon Prime. And then you could buy the outfits yeah. that the designers made through Amazon. I, I, out of curiosity, I did go on to try to like see what it would be like to buy one of the things. And it was very, it was very clunky user experience. So it's interesting. I, Guess I don't follow the right influencers because I missed the 11 hour program <laughs> that they did. Me too. We went on Amazon and tried to find like the landing page for like live stream shopping, but it it's not easily accessible. So I don't no, know. I mean, it's, Amazon it's- is like notoriously like they have like the one click to buy, which is amazing, but also like a really complicated experience otherwise. Like I was trying to figure out how to like tell someone that I didn't get the package they said was delivered and I still haven't figured it out in 48 hours. Well, it's huge also for Gen Z in China. So I think like we'll just have to um, submit to this new wave of consumerism. Okay. In other news, ClassPass has teamed up with on-demand beauty providers. So basically you can use your points to get beauty services. They're using Priv in the US and Blow Limited in the UK. And they're starting in Austin, Texas and New York City. And basically you can get on-demand manicures, pedicures, haircuts, blowouts. And it's it's a big deal because, you know, obviously these services and these businesses have been really hard hit by coronavirus. And ClassPass has over 1 million members. So being able to provide, you know, these businesses with a new customer base and an ease of booking is kind of major. What's also interesting about this story, and this is a story that was reported in Glossy, is that number one, you know, beauty services and wellness services are actually rebounding faster than fitness. So this is actually a way that the beauty industry is helping fitness more than vice versa. And number two, I think that there um, there has been some controversy or some rumblings in the past about ClassPass and how much of a commission they're taking off of reservations in the past 
uh, in back in February, according to Glossy, there was a Vice article that talked about how some fitness studios were basically having to discount the price that they would charge for classes to accept ClassPass as a partner, and it wasn't like financially viable. And so I think there's some concern that again, like these beauty and wellness companies are going to have to basically give a really big chunk of their payment to ClassPass. Isn't it basically just like a software tool? Like, I don't understand why they're taking such a big cut of reservations. Like, does Resi, like, take a huge chunk of your, like, food order when you when you make a reservation at a restaurant? I don't know. I'm actually really curious about that. Like, what percentage does Resi or OpenTable take? Or do you have to pay a monthly fee? I don't know how it works. At the time, in this is back in February when, when Vice did their report, they reported that ClassPass's commission was typically around 5%. I feel like that's so exploitative to take a commission off of every booking for a software like, tool. They're providing marketing and like ease of booking. Here's a little nugget of information that's interesting. This was reported in the New York Times that this summer there was a uptick in the sale of smoking and cigarette products after a long-term decline. And what's weird is that obviously we're living in a the time of COVID where you want to keep your lungs in tip top shape. But I think probably, you know, people are looking for a way to relax and kind of. Yeah. They're stuck with their families and their homes. They're probably like looking for any reason to get out for a few minutes. Yeah. I always wonder, you know, the vaping that can't be healthier for you to have a hot, a heated piece of plastic, create a vapor that you're inhaling. No, it's like smoking a computer. I don't I think obviously all smoking is bad smoking, but I think this underscores what we've been talking about and actually what we're talking about in a way in our interview this episode, which is that the stress and the trauma of COVID and of political unrest in this country has certainly taken its toll and people are looking for different ways to soothe themselves, smoking being among them. Um, and that I think is a good segue for this interview. Yeah, let's get into our interview with Dr. Isom. So this week, we talked to Dr. Jessica Isom, who is both a medical doctor and she has a master's in public health. She did her residency at Yale University, where she was the chief of medical education, as well as the chief resident of diversity and inclusion. She now practices primarily psychiatry at a clinic in Dorchester, Massachusetts. And Dr. Isom's primary focus in her career thus far has been really working with marginalized communities and eradicating racial and ethnic bias in healthcare and particularly in mental health care and use of a community-focused population health approach in psychiatric practice. We wanted to talk to Dr. Isom because, you know, as everyone knows, it's been a doozy of a year, to say the least. And particularly, you know, with the confluence of the COVID crisis and the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement, the Black population in America has been doubly affected. And we wanted to talk to Dr. Isom about how, you know, the trauma of 2020 has manifested in the Black community and ways in which the Black community and those who might not have access to psychiatrists and therapists and, you know, all sorts of different. Because we're so uh, backwards with our healthcare system here in the U.S. Right. Obviously, mental health is important to us. We've talked about it 
you know, quite a bit on our little program that we have here. So we were really grateful that Dr. Isom joined us for this interview. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to focus on what you do in medicine? So I am a community psychiatrist and I currently work in Dorchester, Massachusetts, which is a predominantly black community, uh, also has other uh, persons of color living there too, which is really representative of the entire diaspora. So you have black American descendants of slaves, Afro-Caribbean, and also you have immigrants from African countries all here. And uh, I have structured my career to be in this position because that has been the most obvious need as it relates to mental health, meaning that there aren't often people in these places available and they often aren't culturally attuned in a way to offer the kind of services that people need. And I got a sense of this myself when I was in childhood because I had a parent who was engaged with the mental health system and they really did not engage with us in a way that would be helpful as children for understanding what was going on and also didn't really acknowledge the racial trauma uh, that my parent had experienced that contributed to their breakdown uh, and a lot of their past traumas related to their, their own upbringing. So for me, it kind of converged into this interest into psychiatry, but also specifically with an interest in providing a better healing space for people who are of African descent, because there was a need out there. Where did you study? So I grew up in North Carolina and left to go to New Orleans for uh, undergrad at a historically Black college called Xavier. And it's a pre-med pipeline college. It produces, I think, second to Howard, the most number of Black matriculants into medical school. So I was one of those. And I went to medical school at UNC Chapel Hill um, for four years and an additional year to get my master's of public health um, from the UNC School of Public Health. And then from there, I trained at Yale and the Department of Psychiatry to become a psychiatrist. And that was my most recent transition before coming here to Massachusetts as an attending psychiatrist. It must have been very interesting to go from a historically Black college university and then from UNC to then Yale, which doesn't have as great of a history, in, in mm. this, particularly as it pertains to the Black community. Well, I mean, I would say UNC was its own ex- transition, too. <laughs> Uh, the socialization was completely different. I went from being around mostly Black college students, and also there was a pretty significant Vietnamese population at Xavier, to being one of the few Black students at UNC Chapel Hill. And actually, it was pretty, pretty um, overwhelming. I still remember during orientation, like, abruptly leaving a bar early because I was just overwhelmed by how different the socialization was. It was just completely different. And I didn't really know what to do with that. So, Um, I adjusted at UNC and then came to Yale and I had lots of ideas about what it would be like me, a black person in an institution like Yale. Fortunately though, my department is one of the more progressive in the Yale residency groups. So it's the kind of place where you could talk about things like racial trauma, race and racism. However, the institution itself is still Yale. Um, So there are a lot of oppressive interactions there that are pretty representative of any institution that has the kind of history that Yale has you know, sort of our thesis was this idea that COVID and the resurgence, you know, for, for the Black community, not only have they in the last nine months been struggling with COVID and the sort of effects that it's had on their day-to-day lives and their careers and everything else, but also the resurgence of Black Lives Matter as a movement and as more and more Black people have died 
on camera at the hands of the police, you know, has caused increased rates of depression and potentially and probably PTSD. And not only is society affected by these two things in the past, you know, six months, but they've both disproportionately affected the black community. What have you seen in your practice as sort of early effects of these trends, so to speak? Yeah. So interestingly enough, this idea of of grief has been one that is intimately woven into the black experience before COVID. So that's grieving, you know, excess deaths in general related to racial inequality, which could be described as those from community violence, heart disease, you know, cancers, all of these uh, other manifestations of racial inequality that shorten your lifespan and reduce the quality of your life while you're still living. So grieving has been a part of the Black experience. And then comes 2020, where you see not just the numbers, but also a refocusing of the white gaze. So whiteness is associated with power, so that controls narratives and what we put on TV. So an increased interest has led to more of a gaze that you see when you turn on the TV. So it's not just you talking to your brother, sister, mommy, auntie, uncle about racism and how it's impacted your life. You're also seeing other people talk about it on TV and showing videos and images of it. And it's, it's sort of like you're unable to turn it off because it's all of the gazes are focused on it now as a topic of interest. So I think people have walked into this year, into the pandemic, and into this increased focus already being primed to be triggered and re-traumatized because it's not novel, uh, it's not new information, but seeing it and being exposed to it and not being able to step away from it, it, that is pretty novel. And I would say over the past four or five years with the you know advent of social media and all these videos, it feels different than it felt, at least for me, when I was in college. Uh, or in medical school. So people will say in the visits, you know, I've been watching the news and it's, it's, it's overwhelming and I'm not sure what to do. And I'll have to say to them, well, you should set aside time to watch it or maybe not watch it at all. The same practices that I've had to adopt, you know, turning in, tuning in or not tuning into social media as well. But Black death from the COVID-19 pandemic mixed in with all of the rest of the stuff that we're dealing with, the uncertainty, the mismanagement, the lack of trust really is the perfect recipe for destabilizing some people. So I'd say some people are really uh, you know, vulnerable to that kind of stress and are tipping over and not doing so well, particularly those that have substance use disorders. But a lot of other people are taking it in stride. You know, This is something we've seen before. We've experienced this before. It's, it's new and there's sort of a, a resilient approach to it that it's something that we can get to, but it's a communally focused regard for what's happening, which means friends, family, the church, my relationship with nature, other kind of faith beliefs, those are the things that are getting me through. So that communal, uh, cultural aspect of the Black community, I think, has buttressed them from what could have been more disastrous this year. Is there Mm -hmm. a section, I have not been to medical school, shocker to our listeners, Um, is there a section (laughs) in medical school that deals with exactly that, you know, racism and race literacy? Like, is there a course? Is there a, is there a year? I'm assuming not. Is there a chapter? <laughs> like, how does it work? Yeah, race in medical school is most commonly referred to as the risk factor for disease. Race. Racism increasingly is being mentioned. I mean, for me, it was 
not mentioned until I went to my uh, school of public health year. I don't remember until I took a health equity course during my school of public health year. I didn't understand how racism impacted health. So had I gone through the traditional you know, experience, I probably would not have been exposed to that. More recently though, and I've been out of medical school now for six years, more recently they have classes like social determinants of health, wherein they might mention racism, but often it's students organizing electives outside of class time to actually talk about race and racism. So it's like you have to have more hours piled on top of your hours <laughs> to access this information. And it's often students leading the way and not faculty. And they're not requirements. So no one is, you know, it's people who are personally interested versus right. uh, professionally right. obliged. Right. At Yale, though, and, and this is why I say we are very progressive relative to other places, even across the country at Yale, we have a core curriculum in our Department of Psychiatry residency training program. And that's been core for the past three years, which means it's a part of the didactics that everyone has to come to, I think, more than like 70% of the year. So it's across the board, just with medications and other forms of therapy, you're learning about social justice and health equity. And that's the way it has to be done, has to be just like everything else. So how would somebody who's Mm -hmm. already practicing in the field and not going to this one program at Yale, which sounds like it's doing it the right way, how can they like stay informed? Are there like any resources I don't really know much about this continued education piece. Well, so I'll say in a nutshell, basically, we are required as board certified physicians to get a certain number of continuing medical education credits over a period of time. So CME is what that's called. And a question might be how much of CME is geared towards the topic of race and racism? Not very much. (laughs) So hopefully that is changing. Then you also have grand rounds, which are I'm actually going to do one this afternoon on how to become an anti-racist psychiatrist. So Grand Rounds are a space where you could invite speakers to talk about this topic for both advanced practitioners and like early career people. Other than that, uh, conferences, you know, they usually will have a, a couple of sessions that are dedicated to this topic. So you can choose to go or, or not choose to go. But it is, it's kind of the same culturally. You have to be interested in, in see it as something important and seek it out. It's not mandated as a core competency for being a physician or a psychiatrist to be literate or responsive to race and racism. Very doomsday, but (laughs) this is why I'm so interested in medical education because it doesn't have to be this way. We could teach people about it and teach them how to apply it to how they practice to actually provide better care for all people. It's not like a genius idea. It's not a genius idea, but it is, it's, it can feel far off, you know, when the, you know, when the predominant, the, the prevailing, you know, way of doing things is the white way of doing things. And so to, Mm -hmm. to be able to like insert a, a whole sort of part of a curriculum is, is a, is a big undertaking. It is. And I mean, a lot of the times I'll, I'll be talking to people who want to um, bring me in as a consultant or to do a, a, some kind of training. And a part of our conversation is how do we convince people to care? You know, and I think that's a core part of any advocacy issue. I get it, but it's just strange that in this country where race and racism are the core of our being, that we're trying to figure out how to get people to care. And what you're talking about is what I like to call white hegemony, which is basically where they hold white people nearly exclusive decision-making power. They're gatekeepers. 
So you're right. They ultimately have to have some kind of increased awareness to think this is important and or be pressured to think it's important to open up spaces and opportunities for us to talk about it. Speaking of that pressure, I think Annie and I, before we talked to you, we're talking about how a lot of beauty companies, to bring it back to beauty, have felt a lot of consumer pressure uh, and as a mm-hmm. result have you know created shade extensions, perhaps of their foundation ranges or lipstick colors that are quote unquote nudes that would be nudes for someone who had a darker skin tone versus someone who has a lighter skin tone. How do you sort of perceive the beauty industry as a psychiatrist and as someone who's also working in community psychiatry as it pertains to sort of like those sort of racial tensions? Yeah, I think the same kind of insight and racial awareness is required to change like how people operate. So like even in the decision-making process for what the product is going to be, it's an afterthought that maybe more shades should be included. And that's because the decision-making process does not account for race and racism, you know? So that's the exact same thing that I would say to a, a clinic or department who's trying to figure out how do we serve the needs of all people, including their beauty needs. You would have to restructure how you make decisions. And you'd have to recognize that your decisions are based in white supremacy because the white beauty ideal is a product of white supremacy. So of course, we're going to have like 50 shades, exaggeration, for (laughs) that skin tone, and then have three for what really is just as diverse of a skin tone of black uh, shades as black and brown. But you really have to flip the script on how you think about whose needs you're trying to serve. And unconsciously, and sometimes consciously, those needs are the needs of white people. Hence, the products are the same in psychiatry and in the beauty industry. So I would think about the decision-making process first. Which is oftentimes just based in like data and numbers. And when you say, but these shades sell more, so we kind of have to focus on this range. It's like, well, of, of course they sell more because it's like you've done nothing to market to this other group of people and you're not making products for them. So it's like... Yeah. It's this weird, like, cyclical Mm -hmm, argument. mm -hmm. When you were first talking about sort of the gatekeepers being sort of a product of white supremacy, I was thinking about how the DSM had only in the last 30 years has uh, took homosexuality out Mm -hmm, of the mm -hmm. manual as the DSM is the diagnostic and what is it? Statistical manual. Statistical manual. (laughs) I love how you just like mention it like you know. Well, I didn't know what it stood for, but I know what it is. It's basically no. Like I the, do the same thing. <laughs> it's where you sort of have all the psychological and psychiatric diagnoses, and they took homosexuality, which was in it, out of it, and that was a decision that was made by uh, or was sort of brought forward by a bunch of homosexual psychiatrists who were sort mm-hmm. of within the APA, American Psychiatric mm-hmm. Association, and who sort of like rebelled internally. I guess I was wondering, are there any race-based or racial diagnoses in the DSM? And like, should there be? Yeah, Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting question. And I'll say the disruptive nature of that time, literally it was disruptive to get people's attention that this is wrong and we need to take this out, was mostly successful because it was still white psychiatrists, right? And I say that because black psychiatrists before that and around the same time and since then have been doing the exact same thing with different results. And not necessarily around like putting racism in the DSM, which some people have 
argued for. I personally don't support that. <laughs> Wait, so what, yeah, what is that? Are they saying it's like a, a, a mental disorder? Illness. Yeah. And, like and, racism and, is like for, yeah. for the racist? I, and I don't want to, I, in very, very like intellectual articulate arguments, that, Which this know, is not. I, right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I don't want to be dismissive of them. I just disagree with them. But racism in the, the extreme. So this might be more applicable for someone who bombs a church to kill Black people and four little girls die, like that historical narrative. But the issue with that is that racism is not just an internal experience. It's, it's the structures and policies and practices and norms. And if we focus on it as an individual thing, we might begin to forget those other pieces. So that's that piece. What I will say though, is that I strongly feel a lot of what I do and working with people is address the consequences of racism in their lives, which manifest as being anxious or having a depressed mood or having feelings of low self-esteem or low self-worth. There's no place for me to say, well, that's a consequence of living in a racially oppressive society. So the DSM lacks context in general for the disorders that we have in there, but specifically lacks context for how racism plays a role in people's psychological experiences. There was an article that you, I think, had written, or it was a transcription of a conversation that you were having with another psychiatrist. She was mentioning that realization of like being in a store and like feeling the physical manifestation of like a racist encounter and just recognizing that feeling and then having it be so constant in your life, like. We talk a lot in like the wellness space around like how these like small things can really like ultimately affect our health. But like this feels so real. And like you said, Mm -hmm. the context of it is so important. Yeah, I just thought that was a really effective way to really give some context and understanding for people that don't experience this, how like debilitating Mm -hmm. it can be. And I guess like Mm -hmm. I was wondering back to the beauty question, if there's any thoughts that you have around helping people understand like I know it's beauty and it's like it's in this vanity space and it seems you could spend your your energy elsewhere than complain about like a shade range right like why is it so can you explain how it does truly affect someone like emotionally and mentally yeah I mean I so I have a two and a half year old and I you know being who I am I'm very aware of what I am exposing her to So even in representations on cartoons, what shades of skin you see, what hairstyles you see, what's considered hip, which is the first consideration for putting it on TV, is something that she's absorbing. What she's looking at in magazines, you know, as she grows older, what she sees with her peers, all these sorts of things are data, pieces of data. And it's not going to take long for her to realize that her hair texture is not considered a part of what is ideal beauty. So, you know, that's usually the first entry point for little black girls and little black boys and others with a similar hair texture into what it means to be beautiful. Body shape is also a pretty huge thing. And, you know, as we all are socialized into school and are around our peers, we learn from them too what's considered beautiful. So certain body types being more commonly found in certain groups becomes a topic of discussion. Like I know people who've developed eating disorders because they were one person with a certain body type surrounded by those who did not have it going into the store when you're 12 years old to look for your first lipstick or something, you know, and you don't see what is there for you that actually matches your skin tone. And you think about that and you have conversations about that. But then you see on TV, you know, that people have afros and cornrows and like Bantu knots and all these things. And people are saying how beautiful it is. 
but only because those things are not on a body that looks like yours, you think about that too. So like your socialization into what beauty means for you as any person uh, is influenced by racism. And it's something that we, even those 30, 40, 50 year olds are still talking about because the same things are still happening. So I'm not all into the beauty world, but I usually hear the stories that are (laughs) about this kind of stuff such as a certain person deciding that they want to wear cornrows, but not understanding the history of cornrows and not considering the people who wear them all the time beautiful. <laughs> like it's only beautiful when it's on you. And that messaging is psychologically damaging. And that's why you see campaigns like black is beautiful. Why does it have to be said? Because the opposite is most often said. And I think people can appreciate that as far as self-esteem and self-worth, what it means to be told that you're not beautiful. Do you mean like the the opposite being sort of the appropriation of, you know, historically black hairstyles on non-black people? The opposite being your your natural hair that grows out of your head is rough, unprofessional, nappy, unkempt, dirty. I mean, even like little kids in school are told this and sometimes sent home because of the hair that grows out of their head. So that's like the opposite messaging dreads, braids, cornrows, all of these things have been policed, not even just for kids, but also for people like us that have jobs. There might be a policy at work, for example, that says this specific hairstyle is not considered professional, you know? So that's the opposite, as opposed to just celebrating that there's a diversity of hair textures, for example, a diversity of hairstyles, and that those are all equally beautiful. It's actually interesting you mentioned you know, policing and corporate policies as it pertains to hair, because I was just reading an article that the headline was that the House of Representatives just passed the Crown Act, which had been at first a California statewide act and resolution, um, but now as a as a national policy, which is uh, banning the discrimination of natural, particularly natural hairstyles. Is that, I mean, obviously it's good, but is it good? Like, is that, should that be codified? My understanding of that is that they had to go around the Supreme Court, at least in New York, specifically. I I believe a woman was fired or told to cut off her dreadlocks to keep her jaw. They argued it in the state. Then they went to Supreme Court and they lost. So my understanding was that going around that legislatively was the solution. And I would say any effort to address how ridiculous it is to say what hairstyles um, are professional versus not rooted in one particular group's hair texture is one that I would support, just put simply. There's been a lot of talk on social media and not only in the Black population, but seemingly every population talking about microaggressions and triggers and all these sort of words that have become part of the vernacular. For people who are experiencing microaggressions, First, can you sort of break down what a microaggression is and then also sort of like how you could proactively not be super negatively affected by them? So first I'll say microaggressions as a term is describing an aspect of human interaction that's always been there. So it was a term uh, created by a Black psychiatrist, Dr. Chester Pierce, and he was describing like the daily interactions that communicate specifically for Black people that they are less than, less intelligent, less capable, less responsible, less motivated, lesser belonging in certain spaces. And that's been expanded over the years to include other 
marginalized experiences, like those related to gender, gender identity, um, abilities, language spoken, those sorts of things. But really what it's describing is what is the experience of being in a context that considers you the other? You're not the center, you're the other. And people you know, treat you that way unintentionally and sometimes intentionally. So you experience microaggressions you know, as a person of color, specifically a Black person, because you are in a, a society that is anti-Black and that manifests itself in a lot of different ways. So a person might walk, for me, for example, walk into like a medical school and at the front desk, there's a guy who's supposed to check IDs and he didn't check the three people in front of me, but he decides to check mine. And, oh, I'm the only Black person <laughs> that walked in in the past five minutes. Microaggression. And it, there's a cascade of things that happens after that depending on how, if you detect it or not, and then maybe it's the third one that day or the 20th, and then what kind of week you're having, or if you have a test tomorrow or whatever. So there can be a perfect storm that makes it like super, super impactful, or it could happen in a context where it kind of, you can brush it off. But when it hits you, the important thing to do is to access someone that can validate that that was your experience. So yes, that did happen. And yes, it's connected to you being a racialized person. And then it would be the same things that you would expect anyone to do that has a trauma response, which is enact those things that help you kind of calm down the alarms. So that could be something soothing, like listening to music or buying your favorite cookie or talking to your mom, for example, if that's your source of support or watching your favorite movie. But you do have to calm down the alarm bell because over time, that stress response can be really detrimental to your health. So you kind of have to be a caretaker for those responses. It's interesting that acknowledging it and validating it is the right approach versus saying, don't let that affect you or don't worry about them. Because like that's, uh, you know, I feel like that's the knee jerk reaction for a lot of aggressions, Mm -hmm. not just microaggressions and not just in particular for the black community, but, but that's Mm -hmm. actually not the way to deal with those kind of mini traumas. Right. And I would say, I mean, a lot of the work that I do with patients And just in general, because I'm a psychiatrist, is talk about validation versus invalidation. And I really think that we're socially conditioned to invalidate people. I don't know why, but that's the that is the definition of invalidation. Don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. How is that ever helpful (laughs) to anyone? No, it's not. It's like telling someone to relax. That's such a good point. Uh, (laughs) I wonder. Do you think it's like rooted in like competition or something? I think people don't. I think we're socialized to not be comfortable with others suffering and pain. I mean, so we're saying, yeah, just, you know, get over it to hurry them through a piece of suffering, which does not make sense. So if someone was grieving, for example, I think that we're all at a point where we understand that that's a process and it takes time. And if we applied that grief approach to these kinds of interactions, we would respond differently. Are there any other in your day-to-day work, any other sort of repercussions or presenting illnesses or anything that you're seeing that is sort of troubling you or sort of making your antenna go off on sort of things that are going to become a bigger issue for the community you treat? Yeah, I think people are nervous about, I mean, the pandemic and, you know, the second wave that's coming. And these are people that are members of those communities that have been disproportionately burdened with, you know, disease transmission and consequences of that transmission and sometimes death. So that that is what people are experiencing right now. The best way I can describe this is what you see on TV where people are out at restaurants and happily frolicking in public spaces is not happening in my community. The streets are just as dead as they were at the start of the pandemic because people are still quarantining. So it's a different experience. 
And I would say as far as the racial justice stuff, you know, I don't know how much hope people have for how that will materialize the rest of 2020 into 2021, but I would be really worried, not just for patients, for myself, my family, my friends, my colleagues, if change doesn't actually come, because this has been characterized as such a unique moment in history. More people are interested and angry and ready to do something. And I think people are holding their breath to see that change and it will be incredibly um, disappointing for it not to happen. So I am waiting with a beaded breath <laughs> for that too and what it means for mental health because sustaining yourself in this kind of work requires hope. Like yeah. that's what we're living off of. Speaking of hope, the election is approaching. Are you, I, my mother who is a white, you know, upper middle class flaming liberal Jew in upstate New York is like hysterical beyond hysterical about the election and Trump are you seeing anything in the community you treat uh, sort of election anxiety, like what's going to happen? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. There, there's been a lot of talk about civil war, if Biden wins, if Trump wins, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so many other things to talk about, surprisingly, <laughs> besides Trump during the appointment. So I'll just start there. <laughs> like yeah. real, real life stuff is happening, like real life stuff. So it doesn't commonly come up nor is it encouraged necessarily to talk about Trump specifically. I mean, I give people an opener. I'll say like during the visit, you know, the world is a hot mess right now. I'm sure that's having an effect on how you feel and what you're thinking about. And if they take that as an opener, talk about Trump, sure we can, in the election we can, but otherwise there's real stuff happening in people's lives that's more pressing. What I will say though, is I think there will be a sigh of relief because a lot of the stress, the uncertainty, the like confusion about what's going to happen in the future is rooted in his administration. So there might be sort of a releasing of some stress after the election if it goes in the way that, you know, some people are hoping. If not, I, I don't even want to necessarily think about that possibility, but I think we would have to prepare ourselves for, like, I don't know, like a pressure cooker situation that hasn't had a chance to relieve any of its pressure. Is there anything else that you you feel like is important that maybe is not getting enough lip service right now? Yeah, I would say focusing on state and local government, you know, because people are making moves in those spaces that could be more impactful than what happens in the White House. I mean, racial justice doesn't start and stop. Neither does the COVID-19 response, the public health response start and stop with the White House. Like a lot of public health departments have taken the lead and done fabulous jobs. So if refocusing the gaze from the White House to state and local governments was a treatment, I would recommend that all the time (laughs) because that's more of like a reliable thing to pay attention to that will impact your life from day to day, what's happening in those spaces. And you see people for racism specifically are declaring it as a public health crisis, something the White House would never do with its current occupant, but it's happening at the state level. So I think that can be a really helpful thing to offer people to do. I mean, I also think that this, you know, it can feel, as you said, very doomsday and like the world is a hot mess. And as you said, in your field, you have to have hope because that, mm-hmm. that that's what can sustain you. It's like in palliative care, like you have mm-hmm. to sort of hope that you're helping people, you know, transition to death in an <laughs> easier way. And you're sort of, there will be more treatments for things like hope as silly as it sounds is uh, or as sort of like pipe dream as it can feel sometimes is actually Mm -hmm. super important to sustaining a positive outlook. 
Yeah. And there's good people out there. I mean, I, um, are there, I don't per- yeah, I, I see it. I see it. <laughs> and like, and that's what keeps me. I mean, that honestly is what keeps me going. I'm not a person that has faith beliefs to rely on. So I really do have to rely on seeing and being around good people. And, you know, I feel that there's enough of that kind of energy that no matter what happens on, you know, election day and the days following that I'll still be able to have some, some hope. Um, just really beautiful stuff is happening, community-based stuff in response to the pandemic. There's a lady, for example, who's making lasagna for moms who are struggling at home with children who have lost their jobs and can't feed them. There's a program called Lasagna Moms that will deliver dinner to your house and other items. That's the kind of good people stuff that I I like to pay attention to when I'm in like a doomsday (laughs) space. Yeah, there's like these cool community fridges popping up too, like around Mm -hmm. New York and LA and other communities with like free groceries that people Mm -hmm. will then, anybody can fill it up and anybody can take from it. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's cool to see those things happening, which are happening, like you said, on a local level. Mm -hmm. So you've mentioned a couple of things that people can do to help them get through this time. What other advice do you have for those people that are at the point where they do want to seek treatment for the first time and as like a black person navigating this world for the first time what advice do you have yeah I mean it's it's interesting because even in my own training no one said these are the set of resources that will help black people thrive you know so I've actually had to seek those out and I've come to a pretty decent list now of things that I would offer patients Uh, and also family and friends. And they have these toolkits out there, for example, that you could use with yourself or with a group called racial um, trauma toolkits. And they essentially outline for you things that you can do to acknowledge what you've already been through and anticipate what you might go through in the future by preparing yourself to be able to recognize what are signs that I'm experiencing an uptick uh, in my response to racial trauma. And then how do I respond to that based on past successful ways of responding to that. So it's one of these, I just called a recovery, racial recovery action plan. So if I know that I'm not sleeping as well, not eating as much and not being as productive, you know, it's a capitalistic society. So that's on the list too. What do I need to do? Connect with friends, get more physical activity, access a healing space that's specifically for black, indigenous and people of color. Those things might be on your list and you would activate those. And hopefully that gets you back to where you need to be to function. Coming into counseling is an option that some people might consider. However, you also have to think about who's prepared to address your racialized experience. So it's not always the easiest thing to access, but that's a thing too. And then there's lots of community-based organizations out there who offer healing experiences. One is BEAM. It's an organization based on the West Coast. Their website is beam.community.org. There's also the Community Healing Network, and they've done a lot of work with Black psychologists to produce this work group called Emotional Emancipation, which is like a a dedicated weekly experience for about eight weeks where you actually talk about emancipating yourself from racism. There's also another group called the Black Mental Health Alliance that offers lots of resources and webinars and things like that that you can access to. And then faith-based communities have been doing this since the beginning of time. So (laughs) going to your faith-based support, such as your pastor, or faith-based counselor is also an option too, if that is something that you consider to be a part of your toolbox. 
So unlike other groups, when I talk about resources, it's not just coming in to see a person like me, a psychiatrist or a counselor. Often it's community-based supports that sometimes are more prepared to address racial trauma than the traditional mental health supports. Have you heard of these like kind of online accesses to mental health professionals, a tech space? Like, mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on something like that? So, so I think it's great to increase access in ways that reaches people. And, you know, telehealth has allowed us to do that in the traditional setting by just calling people on the phone or having a video chat. However, at the same time, they are probably going to come into the same problems that we have, which is that the services have to be culturally responsive and culturally informed. So if I text this therapist and I say, I just saw a video talking about Jonathan Price being essentially murdered in a gas station parking lot, help me. They would need to be able to be literate in race and racism, what that means for our country, what racial trauma is, the effects it has on the mind and body, and be prepared to respond. What can you tell us about what you're currently doing right now? I am starting a consulting business to actually fuel my passion for medical education. And I'm specifically interested in helping people apply anti-racism to how they function in the healthcare world, although it's applicable in other spaces too. So a lot of what I'm doing now is working with healthcare organizations and private companies, for example, Virgin Pulse, to just add an anti-racist lens to the work that they're already doing. And people can contact me um, related to that or just to have some connection on Twitter. Um, My Twitter handle is at Dr. Jess Isom, MDMPH, or they can find me on LinkedIn. Cool. Thank you so much, Dr. Isom. Your hope is giving me a little bit more hope on this gray Wednesday morning. (laughs) Now is the time for our favorite segment of the week, product of the week. Annie, you go first. If you insist. I know it's kind of hard to think about because we're all wearing masks and we probably will be wearing masks for a while, but I've been back on the retainer game. Like mouth retainer? Mm -hmm. Some years I'm like, look, I'm going to like do more of the like boho chic teeth where I let my little like buck tooth do its thing and whatever. It's cute. But now I'm like, okay, now I'm wearing my retainers again and I want more linear, you know, organized chiclet teeth. But one product that I've used since I was like 12 years old that I think everybody just like needs to have in their medicine cabinet are crest white strips. Just the normal ones? Just the normal ones. I don't understand why anybody would ever go to their dentist to get their teeth whitened. My parents' best friend my entire life was a dentist, and he even said crest white strip. Really? Don't ever do anything else. And the way I use them is like you don't do the whole regimen at once. You just like spot whiten. You're like, I I drank like a little too much red wine or I picked up smoking again. Some people might, you know, Um, and then you do, you know, one set for like half an hour, however long they tell you, like leave it on and then you're good. It's funny that we all used Crest white strips like 10 years ago and then we stopped. Who stopped? I, I still buy them. My mom asks me every year what I want for Christmas and I just say Crest white strips. It's a great present, actually. Like no one doesn't want whiter teeth. Well, you know, I, I might not give them to someone if they didn't ask. But people think you have to like use them for 60 days or whatever. And it's like kind of overwhelming to think about. But I just use them like, you know, once a month or even less. Your teeth are particularly white. Yeah. Well, you know my secret. There you go. My product of the week is 
related to a journey that I've been on for as long as I can remember, which is my Jewish hair journey. It's one that I was given, or rather sort of birthed into by my father. We are both obsessed with our hair. Jewish hair, for those who are not Jewish or don't know someone who's Jewish, is both fine and thick. It's frizzy. It's curly. It is not smooth and shiny unless you've sort of figured out some sort of voodoo to make it so. And I've never really, I think the hardest thing, the really, really hardest thing has been to find someone who knows how to cut this kind of hair. Because if you treat it like straight, normal hair, it, it like grows in a crazy way. It'll get like puffy on the side. Like you can't just like get like a buzz cut or can't just go to a barber and like have them do it. Like these Curly hair has a mind of its own. Anyway, I finally found my hair whisperer, my hair guru. He is a guy named Peter Lux, and he is... Is that his real name? Yeah, Peter Lux. He is German by way of London, and he now lives in Los Angeles. He's like an editorial hairstylist. He does Reese Witherspoon and... Michelle Williams and Wait, sorry. Like, I said that my parents' best friend was a dentist and then you called that name dropping. <laughs> I, I I say that he does all these celebrities. None um, of which are Jewish, but go on. No. And none of which are men. But he has now started doing at home haircutting outside. And I've known him for quite a while and he he's taught me how to hack Jewish hair, which is there's two things. One is you have him cut it. Number two is the way you style it is while your hair is still wet, you add in like a semi-matte paste. So it's somewhere between a wax and a cream, but the point is that it's not a shiny product and it's not a ultra ultra hold product. So I was using Bumble and Bumble Sumotech, which I have been for like over 10 years. But he came over a few weeks ago and he just introduced me to a product called the Amica or Amica Heist Molding Blend. And it is a little jar. It has like polka dots and a It's like spiral, a flower, kind of like a hippie, rainbow-y. hippie motif. And what I like about it is actually seems like it's you get more than you get with Sumotech. And it, quote, holds up like a wax, but has a pliability of a cream. And what you do is you put it in your curls when they're wet, and then you let it dry. And then once your hair is dry, you kind of like release the semi-hold. And so it doesn't, so it like kind of expands a little bit, but not puffs out. And it's changed my whole outlook on my hair. I actually like my curls now. The other hack he had. Wait, can you take your headphones off so I can see Oh, wow. There's so much body. Yeah. Nick, I'm, I see the difference. I'm not even kidding. Yeah. And the other hack he taught me was, I was like, well, what you know, shampoo, what conditioner? I like have never known what to use. And he was like, head and shoulders. He was like, I know it sounds crazy. And I know it has like sulfates and all the shit you're supposed to avoid. But like you do that a couple times a week. My hair's never felt better. Because, oh, I should mention that Peter has, he's not Jewish, but he has curly, thick hair. So he like understands how to cut it and understands what it feels like to have that kind of hair. And yeah, I'm I'm a convert. Amika Heist Molding Blend. I'm so glad that you have finally figured that out for yourself. Me too. I mean, I'm almost 37 and I finally figured out what to do with my hair. So there's hope for everyone. 
Okay, that's it for this week's episode of Eyewitness Beauty. Thank you so much for listening. Please, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram at Eyewitness Beauty or write to us at hi at eyewitnessbeauty.com. Eyewitness Beauty is produced by Jessamyn Molly of Seaplane Armada. Our art is by Simon Abronowitz, and our theme music is by Danny Prezant. We also have a wonderful production and research assistant named Alicia Bansall. We'll be back next week with another brand new episode, so we will talk to you then. God bless. Bye, y'all. Bye.